This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. You know, there's a lot of hard things to understand in Scripture, but I think six of the most difficult words were spoken by Jesus himself in Matthew 6.25. There Jesus said, Do not worry about your life. To which most people today would probably say, Seriously? That snippy little comeback today means something like, Jesus, you can't be serious. You want me to not worry in this day and age? Come on, Jesus. Get real. Facing a pandemic, social unrest, riots in the street, an upcoming election, and now a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And you want me to not worry? To, to which Jesus would say, yeah, that's right. You heard me correctly. I don't want you to be anxious. I want you to put your faith and trust in me because I'll take care of you and meet the deepest needs of your heart. You need me. Later in that same passage in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus imagines some of his followers panicking as they face the various pressures of life. And they say something like, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? With what shall we clothe ourselves? And Jesus said, hey, time out, gang. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Panicked pondering. Today it might sound something like this. When do you think they'll have a new vaccine? Will we be wearing these masks a year from now? What's the cutoff point in schools? When will it get to a point in schools where so many people are sick that they'll just pull the plug and say, forget it, it's over. We're just going to do everything online. And by the way, what if your child sits next to a child on the bus and that other child's teacher last week came down with the COVID virus. Now the kid doesn't have it, your kid doesn't have it, but your kid's sitting next to a kid who had a teacher who had the virus. Well, what do you do? What do I do? Jesus, help me. What's going to happen if my candidate doesn't win in November? Is there going to be rioting in the streets? Will either side really be satisfied? And what about the Supreme Court? Will this fight be even uglier than what happened when they nominated Judge Kavanaugh? What should we eat? What should we drink? With what should we clothe ourselves? Jesus said, calm down. Seek first the kingdom of God. You know, we all need a good dose right now of God's kingdom. We need a good dose of God's word. We need the Lord. Psalm 61.5 says, Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from Him. The key words, in my opinion, in that verse are in God alone. Oh, we find rest. We're, we, we can preoccupy ourselves with all kinds of things and, and kind of uh, divert our attention and try to comfort ourselves, but most often we're not finding rest in God alone. Psalm 63.3 says, Because your love is better than life, My lips will glorify you. My soul will be satisfied as with the riches of, the richest of foods. 
We're going to talk a lot about food today. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's an invitation to come and eat, to feed upon Jesus and to feed upon his word. More than anything else, we need him right now. He can meet the deepest longings of our heart. By the way, do you remember how Jesus defined eternal life? Streets of gold? Well, I guess that's part of it. Living forever? Yeah, that's part of it. A new heaven, a new earth? Yeah, the Bible talks about that. Being reunited with loved ones? Yeah, that's part of it. But none of those things really defined what salvation and eternal life was for Jesus. Here's how Jesus summarized it. Jesus defined eternal life in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's it. That's eternal life. That's salvation right there. What's it all about? Knowing God, being connected to Him, communing with Him, walking with Him, being united with Christ, being satisfied in God alone. One day Jesus was teaching a crowd of people about a special kind of bread that he was going to give to the whole world. And these people were very interested in bread. In fact, just a day or two before that, he had fed 5,000 people. So these people were following Jesus around and waiting for the next big miracle. They wanted some more bread. And Jesus said, well, God's about ready to give the world some bread from heaven. And the people were like... Yes, all right, we're ready for this, just like Moses gave us. You know, Jesus, he's almost as good as Moses, and he's going to give us bread from heaven. So go ahead, Jesus, let's have it. Let's have the bread. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. What does bread do? Well, it nourishes you, and Jesus nourishes you. Bread satisfies you. Jesus satisfies you. Earlier this morning, I called Jesus a kind of spiritual carbohydrate. You know how we just kind of long for those comfort foods, those things, that chocolate cake? Mmm, boy, you know, we love carbohydrates. Because they not only, you know, meet a need, but they kind of satisfy us. And I think in a way, that's kind of the way Jesus is. He's kind of a a spiritual carbohydrate. He not only meets our need, but he does it in a way that is really satisfying. He nourishes us. He sustains us. He keeps us alive. We need to feed upon him. So in these times of panic, pandemics, and power politics, people are looking for something to get them through. might be a hobby, entertainment, the internet, sports, music, friendships, whatever. But what we really need is a steady dose of Jesus. Psalm 145, 6 says, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Did your parents or your grandparents ever do this? I've got something hidden here. Do you want it? Is it a piece of candy? Is it a coin? What is it? And they finally open their hand and give you the gift. That's what that verse just said. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Before you're even hungry, Jesus knows you're hungry. Before you pray, he knows what you're going to say. 
Before you hurt, he already feels the pain. You know, sometimes in the past, our family has visited restaurants that serve little sampler entrees. You don't necessarily just order one particular main dish. You order a sample of dishes. So you might get five or six main courses. They're kind of small. And if you're sitting around as a family, each of you gets to take a little bit of the sample. This morning, I'm going to offer you a little sampler entree featuring the goodness of God. We're going to kind of feast together on some samples out of the Bible of the goodness and the power and the character of God. Okay, sampler dish number one, the greatness of God. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. If you think you can wrap your head around God and you've kind of got a picture of what he's like, I don't know what you have in your brain, but it's not God. Because you cannot fathom how immense and how large and how awesome and powerful and loving God is. You just can't even begin to grasp the greatness of God. In this life, at best, we just barely skim the surface of, in our knowledge about God. Right now, I want to focus on two words. Perfect and infinite. All of God's attributes are for him perfect and they're infinite. In fact, God doesn't really have attributes. He is his attributes. It's not like there is kind of love floating around there and he takes a little bit of love. and There's justice out there and he takes some justice and, and some patience. Now, those characteristics aren't outside of God. They are God. That's, we don't understand God by studying love. We understand love by studying God. Do you understand that? Love isn't something over God, something bigger than God, something outside. He is love. He is perfect, infinite love. But whatever attribute God is, he is perfectly. He's not just patient. He is perfectly patient. He's not just kind. He is perfectly kind. He's not just love. He is, his love is perfect. In addition, and in addition to being perfect, his attributes are infinite. That means without limits. You ever try to wrap your brain around infinity or eternity, those things that are just without limits? It's just almost impossible to do. Um, his knowledge of your situation right now, uh, let's get this. His knowledge of your life right now is perfect. And it's infinite. He knows everything about you perfectly. He knows every possible circumstance that you might face in life. He knows every possible outcome of every possible choice that you might make. He knows you perfectly. He knows all possibilities he knows every financial obligation you will ever have. He knows every second of pain that you will ever experience. He knows 
everything that you'll have to endure, everything that you'll have to put up with, and he knows it perfectly. Looking to the past, he knows and remembers and understands perfectly every single thought that you've ever had. And yet he still loves you and he extends grace to you in Jesus. His love is not just really, really, really awesome. It's not, it's perfect. It, It is beyond anything we can possibly imagine. It's infinite. And God never, never, never makes a mistake in your life. Do you believe that? Never, guys. He does not make mistakes in your life. Not going to happen. Never. He does not make mistakes in your life. His love for you is infinite. Not huge, not big, not gargantuan. His love for you is, are you ready for this? Fasten your seatbelt. Infinite. Beyond anything you could ever possibly imagine. How big is the universe? I don't know. But God is much bigger. And his love is much bigger than you can ever imagine. A particle of light, a photon, travels at about 186,000 miles per second. That's about 671 million miles an hour. It takes a beam of light about 1.3 seconds to go from the moon to the earth. It takes a beam of light about 8 minutes to travel from the sun to El Dorado Springs. To get from earth to the nearest star, it would take a beam of light about 4.2 years. So the nearest star other than our sun, the nearest star to us, is 4.2 years away. 4.2 years of a light traveling, a beam of light traveling at 186,000 miles a second. Now that's a picture of the Milky Way. To travel from one side of the Milky Way to the other side would take a beam of light about 100,000 years. That's one galaxy. That's our galaxy. That's our neighborhood right there. That's where we live. That's our galaxy. It's our backyard. What we don't understand is that there are trillions of galaxies like that or even bigger. Milky Way is kind of a so-so galaxy. has about 250 to 300 billion stars. 250, 300 billion stars in our galaxy and we're in there somewhere. See Aldo in there? It's there somewhere. That's where we live. That's our little neighborhood. So we live in a very, very big universe. Um... With the advent of the Hubble telescope, scientists now estimate that there are 200 trillion galaxies in the universe. Now let's get back to the speed of light. It's really fast. If you stood on the equator and and shined a flashlight straight east, it would quickly circle the globe. 
So you're standing there in the northern part of South America on the equator. You face east. You turn on the flashlight. But as soon as you turn it on, you turn it off. It's like, just like, you know, within about one second. You turn it on, you turn it off. Seven things happened in that little... Seven things happened. That light bulb or that beam of light went around the world and came back and hit you in the head seven times. Seven times. Around the world, bang! Around the world, bang! All before you can get the flashlight off. It has gone around the globe seven times and hit you in the back of the head. That's fast. That is really fast. So let's take a look at this picture here. This, that, just a, that is just a speck of what the universe is. That's just our little neighborhood. But let's, if we can somehow picture the entire universe, the entire observable universe, and ask ourselves, how long would it take that little light to go from one side of the universe to the other side of the universe? This gives you a picture of the bigness of what we're dealing with here. It would take a beam of light, 93 Starts with a B. Billion years to go from one end of the universe to the to the next. So, um, but whatever this largeness does for you, it it God's love is so much bigger. He is bigger than anything we can imagine. There are just no limits to God. Now, some of you are probably thinking, man, this, this astrophysics stuff is really neat, but what in the world does this have to do with me? Well, it has everything to do with you because you serve a big God. And he not only lives out there, but he lives in here as well. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen says, I live in a high and holy place, but I also live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. He knows you intimately. He knew you before you were born. He said to Jeremiah one time, Jeremiah, before you were even in the womb, I knew you. Before you even existed, before your parents existed, Jeremiah, I knew you. Do you believe that? I do, because it's in the Bible. Isaiah 49, 15, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Even though she may forget that baby, I will not forget you. You're more secure than a baby at at the mother's breast. Much more secure. Much safer. Much more loved. So can a mother actually forget a baby at her breast? Well, I don't know. But even if she could, God does not and will not and cannot forget you. Period. Not going to happen. He is not going to forget you and he's not going to give up on you. His care for you is seen in the minute detail that he uh, takes in forming you in your mother's womb. This is a picture of DNA on the screen. Inside each cell within your body is a nucleus. So you've got all these cells. Inside the middle of the cell is a nucleus. And inside the nucleus is one of those. It's a molecule 
of DNA. And there are just millions of pieces of information in that little strand of DNA. Where does that information come from? How does that DNA know, where where does all this information come from that's inside that DNA that enables and allows it to kind of run the factory called the human cell? Evolutionists have a hard time talking, explaining that. Where does information come from? It comes from God. Why are my eyes blue? Programmed by God, one of millions of pieces of information in every cell. Why am I about five foot ten? Right there. It's programmed in. Who put it there? God. So he is huge beyond comparison. He's also programming the DNA in every cell in my body. Awesome. An awesome God. Infinite and perfect. God's power is infinite and it is perfect. His love is infinite and it is perfect. We serve an infinite and perfect God. And you should take encouragement from that. When your life seems to be spinning out of control and the nation seems to be spinning out of control and your world seems to be just kind of crumbling all around you, you need to tie into the infinite, awesome, powerful, loving, good God of the universe. Number two. Sampler dish. Number two. The blessedness of the believer. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are among the most blessed people on this planet. When we consider all that Jesus has done for us, we should rejoice and give thanks every day. Here in just a second, I want to read to you one of the most gripping and I think beautiful passages in the whole Bible. It's found in Hebrews chapter 12. It was written to some Hebrews who are Jewish people living in the first century. Now these people are Christians. And they're trying to kind of put this all together. Where are we in world history? We've, we've got Moses. We've got the Old Testament. There is no New Testament yet. We just put our faith in Jesus. We're saved. But where are we? What are we where am I at in this whole thing? And, and the writer to the Hebrews is trying to tell them, uh, let's, let's pull out the GPS here. Let's kind of try to figure out where you are right now in the flow of world history. So he's talking to some Jewish people who are Christians but are a little lost, a little discombobulated by, by their place in history. And this is what he says to these people. He reminds them that they're no longer in Egypt and they're no longer at Mount Sinai. Okay? You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. You know what God said? You touch the mountain, you die. If you have a little dog go up there and touch the mountain, he dies. You're not there. You're not at the foot of that mountain. You have not come in your Christian walk with Jesus to a mountain that can be touched. 
You've not come to a mountain that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. You haven't come to trumpets that are blasting or to a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken. They said to Moses, Moses, talk to us. We don't want to hear from God. They were terrified. Because they who heard the sound couldn't bear what was commanded. Even if an angel touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. That's not where you are. You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You've come to the church of the firstborn, those whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. You have come to Jesus. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In relationship uh, in, with God, there are uh, the, the places here that you're not, and here are the, the places you are. Uh, you're not in Egypt anymore. You're not in slavery anymore. You're on your way to the promised land. You're free. You're not a slave to sin anymore. You're not in the desert. You're in, in a sense, the promised land. You're a believer. You're not in Genesis. You're in the New Testament. You're not dominated by the old man. You're dominated by the new man. The Spirit isn't outside you. The Spirit is inside you. You're not following Moses. You're following Jesus. You're not under the law. You're under grace. You're not terrified by fallen angels and demons. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You don't live stained by the blood of Abel who killed his brother. You don't live in that old world. You come rather covered with the blood of Jesus and your sins are forgiven. You're not tethered to Adam. You're not tethered to the Old Testament. You're not tethered to the law. You're united and one with Jesus. You are in Christ. 163 times in the New Testament it says, Friends, you are in Christ. You are in Him. That's where you are. You're in Jesus. This should cause us to rejoice and to be happy. Psalm 42, 11. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. It's like the Bible is saying, given all that God has done for you, why are you moping around so much? Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the hill. Whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news and proclaim peace Good tidings, salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. That's where we're at. 
We are a very privileged people, and it's not for this life alone, it's for the next one as well. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, Paul says, we are of all men most to be pitied. But we haven't done that. This isn't just about this life. It's about the next life and a better future. Christ has been raised from the dead. And as in, all, as in Adam, all men die. And in Christ, all men can be made alive. We are truly blessed. Charles Spurgeon, the old 1800s preacher, talked about the dignity of the believer. We, that's something you usually don't talk about. We talk about the sinfulness of a, of a believer. Uh, we talk about the future of a believer. We talk about uh, the failings of a believer. We talk about the need for a believer to be humble. I've never heard anybody, any preacher anywhere, talk about the dignity of the Christian life. Now, Spurgeon did. He was kind of out there on the edge. He said, gang, it's okay to be humble, but you've got to realize you are sitting pretty. You don't realize how much better you have it than non-Christians. Here's what Spurgeon said. It would be well if in the spirit of humility we recognize the true dignity of our regenerated nature and lived up to what it is. What is a Christian? Well, if you compare him with a king, he adds priestly sanctity to royal dignity. I mean, the king's royalty often lies only in the crown, but with a Christian, the dignity is in his inmost nature. He is a new man. He is as much above his fellow men as a man is above the beast of the earth. Surely he ought to carry himself in all of his dealings as, who, as one who is not of the multitude, but chosen out of the world, distinguished by grace, written among, as written among uh, the peculiar people, the royal priesthood, and who therefore cannot and should not grovel in the dust as others, nor live like the manner of the world's citizens. Let the dignity of your nature cause you to cleave to holiness and avoid every appearance of evil. Gang, come on. We are a spatial people, not in of ourselves, but what, because of what God has done for us. He's given us so much. He's done so much and continues to do so much for us. The Bible goes so far as to say that all things are yours. 1 Corinthians 3. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All things are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Everything Jesus has, you have. Perfect plans, they're yours in Christ. Perfect power, yours in Christ. Wisdom, yes, it's yours. Love and acceptance, yes. Fellowship with the Father, yep, you can have that in Christ. Perfect righteousness, it's yours in Christ. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also 
along with him, graciously give us all things. I've often referred to that as the peanuts passage. Everything else that God gives us in life is peanuts compared to giving us Jesus. There was a song up here earlier, something about Jesus was born in a cradle in the dirt. That's true. Do we really believe that the God of the universe, the Son among the Trinity, the Son who has lived forever and ever, do we really believe that he left that throne and became a baby in a manger in the dirt? He did it. Oh, he has done so much for us. So much. Our God is such a giving God, such a loving God. Let's rejoice in him. Number three, sampler dish. Number three on our plate today, peace like a river. By nature, we are not really at peace with God. We're born really at enmity with God. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he's reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You once were an enemy, but now you're a friend. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Check it out, John 15. Jesus said, you're my friends. Romans 5.1 Since then we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Soren Kierkegaard in his book Works of Love speaks about the peace that attends the way of a believer during the closing hours of his life. When the couch of death is prepared for you, when you've gone to bed for the last time, And they're only waiting for you to die. And when stillness grows all about you, and when one after another the family slowly goes away, because only the close ones remain to the very end, and then sure enough, even the close ones quietly slip away. And it becomes quieter because only the very closest of all remain. And then the last one leaves for the last time and turns away to the other side. And you turn over to the other side and you yourself turn to the side of death and there is no one to remain by your side. The very last one at your bedside is the one who was there first all along the living God. In the end, he's all you've got. But he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Psalm 46.10 says, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. Jesus himself offered an invitation to come to him for rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We may not be burdened like the Old Testament people, not burdened with 
laws and regulations and ceremonies and things like that, but we are burdened with worries and financial burdens and our health and worry about the nation. We're, bur- we're burdened with a worry about our families and our children and our schools and our communities. But God is always there for us, ready to give us rest. Isaiah sixty six twelve says, Behold, I will extend peace to her, Israel, like a river. And that's where we get that phrase, peace like a river. God is willing and able to give you peace in your most tumultuous times. And the thing about God, when he meets our needs, is he does it graciously and uh, rejoicing over us. God is not a grump. Some of you think that. You think every time God meets your need, it's kind of like, eh, okay, here's a few bucks. You've got a very poor view of God. God loves to give to you. I've got proof. Isaiah, excuse me, Jeremiah 32, 40. I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will never stop doing good to them. I will inspire them to fear me so that they will never turn away from me and I will rejoice in doing them good. It's not a burden for God to bless you. He enjoys it. He enjoys you. God is not against you if you're a believer. He is for you and he rejoices in doing good for you. He delights in his people. I think it was 457 years ago, in 1563, in a town about the size of Springfield, Missouri, called Heidelberg, in southwest Germany. By the way, this is about 200 years before this country even existed. So we're going to look at a document it's actually a Sunday school lesson. It's for children. They used it for Sunday school kids, and they also used it for new converts to Christianity. In this town called Heidelberg, they wrote, well, the Heidelberg Confession, but I'm going to talk about the catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism was just is another way of saying the Heidelberg Sunday school class. There were 52 lessons for 52 weeks in the year, 52 Sundays. We're going to take a look at what they would have studied on the first Sunday of the year. Sunday number one. This is question number one from the Heidelberg Catechism. This is beautiful. This is some of the most beautiful writing I've ever seen. So they're teaching little kids. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ.
You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.